0: Hi, this is Jeffrey Tucker, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You might also consider supporting this podcast by sharing it and even donating. LCI needs your help so it can continue creating great content.
1: Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom.
0: It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and with me today is special guest, Larry Reed. Larry Reed is president of the Foundation for Economic Education, or FEE, as it's known. Prior to becoming FEE's president, he served for 20 years as president of the Mackinac Center for Public Policy, and he also taught economics full-time from 1977 to 1984 at Northwood University in Michigan and chaired his Department of Economics. From 1982 to 1984, Reed has been a champion for liberty for decades and has authored over 1,000 newspaper columns and articles and dozens of articles in magazines and journals in the United States and abroad. He's also author of several books. Larry, you've you've been in the liberty movement for quite a long time. Thanks for being with us. You're just one of the kind of perfect guests to talk about the liberty movement uh, in, in its sort of history.
1: Well, thank you, Doug. I'm honored to be with you, and I appreciate your thinking of me.
0: So... Give us a little bit of your testimony. How did you get involved in the Liberty Movement? Did you kind of always consider yourself a libertarian? Uh, Where where did it start for you?
1: Well, for me, it began more than 50 years ago when uh, at the age of, I think, 12 or 13, uh, I saw the movie, The Sound of Music. And at that time, I knew nothing about current events or history, but my mother, who took uh, uh, me to that movie, uh, said that, hey, you better uh, learn about this. It's a true story. And I was quite taken by the film because, uh, uh, you know, here was a uh, family, a perfectly good family, just wanted to be left alone. And this uh, r- nasty foreign regime was trying to take over the country and draft the father into the military. And I realized uh, at that early age that, uh, wow, if this was a true story. Then people in certain other countries don't live the same way we do. And that's what started me uh, reading a great deal into history uh, and then uh, one thing led to another. I uh, took a great interest in the history of liberty and uh, largely that was uh, uh, from an anti-communist angle once I really started reading because the communist menace was uh, you know, uh, at present, very present at that time. Uh, but as I read and learned a great deal more, I realized that it's not enough just to be opposed to uh, the use of uh, tanks and force uh, to take over countries. You have to understand your uh, economics, your philosophy, as well as history and, and morality, and I continue to grow from there. But very early, I decided that this whole matter of liberty, that people should be free, uh, was what was going to motivate me for the foreseeable future, and it turned out to be uh, a lifetime.
0: You know, that's a really, you know, interesting way to kind of observe, say, a movie and then kind of realize that that kind of catapulted you into, you know, being interested in liberty as well as you say you were taking a great interest in history from of liberty and from, like, anti-communist literature, but it wasn't just enough to be against all the bad things or the really worst kinds of infringements upon liberty. It was also uh, important to be driven by liberty itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you have to have a positive vision, uh, especially if you're in the business of trying to persuade and convince others. Uh, you have to offer something that's... Uh, exciting, that's optimistic, that says, hey, uh, the world can be a better place. And all you have to do to make it a better place is to get involved on behalf of ideas that you know to be good and and to be right. And uh, so I've always had a very positive outlook, a very optimistic uh, perspective, uh, but it really was an anti-communist perspective, building on what I learned about the uh, Nazi takeover of Austria uh, in that movie. That, uh, that that at first motivated me. I've kept that anti-communism, of course. Uh, <laughs> I'm more anti-communist uh, than ever, but uh, <laughs> I also quickly learned that that's not enough. That you have to have a positive, optimistic vision, and uh, like to think that I do.
0: Yeah, well, I think we'll probably talk about the anti-communist thing a little bit later in the in the episode. You know, it's I, I really like that take because that's similar to the reasons I was attracted to liberty. Uh, I, I've always been sort of a contrarian, but, you know, when when the you know, I kind of grew up conservative and, you know, when when I became interested in the liberty movement, it was for all those optimistic reasons, you know, the reasons that, you know, people like Jeffrey Tucker were like, you know, we live in a marvelous world and nobody's pointing this out. And uh, th- these are all the things we can, you know, just enjoy. And these are all the stupid things the state is, is doing and that kind of thing. But what, what I really love about what you said is that this was, it was about, making the world a better place or or doing things that improve who we are uh the The one thing that I think a lot of libertarians get into the trap of is being too obsessed with actual political affairs, and and not really kind of taking the the angle of you know personal liberty, like the sphere and domain of like virtue and being being a good person. It's kind of a weak way of saying it, but being the kind of person person of virtue that takes advantage of freedom in in a good way, and demonstrates that. I mean, you've written about that in in one of your in your latest book, I believe, but. Do you, do you, did political affairs come later? Was they, were, were you always interested in the politics side or was it, you know, I know your emphasis is often in like personal liberty rather than, you know, just being anti something communist like.
1: Yeah. <laughs> well, I think the political end of things really was paramount in those early, early days. And as my understanding broadened, I realized that, uh, politics though important, uh, is, uh, you know, is something that we ought to de-emphasize, that there are a lot of other things that you're more more fully in charge of, that you can make a difference in your life and uh, the lives of those you come uh, into uh, the ability to influence, uh, whether politics goes your way or not. But keep in mind that 50 years ago, uh, 1968, that that was a tumultuous year. Uh, And based upon all the reading I had done uh, after watching The Sound of Music and and uh, learning more about uh, pre-World War II history, here comes 1968 with the Soviet invasion of Czechoslovakia, which is right next door to where the movie was set in Austria. So I took a keen interest in that Uh, But you also had in 1968 a tumultuous uh, presidential election. You had uh, multiple assassinations of prominent uh, figures like uh, uh, Robert Kennedy and Martin Luther King. And it it was just an incredible uh, uh, year of, of importance, of tragedy. Uh, and so, yeah, I got caught up in politics because that was the big news of that moment. But my perspective uh, rather quickly broadened as I uh, as I grew and as I read a lot more.
0: So next, you said you realized that the you would be this would drive you your favor your your inclination in favor of liberty would drive you in your career and things like that. What what does your career look like? Where have you served uh, the liberty movement?
1: Well, I haven't had uh, a large number of jobs. I've held a few for long periods of time, I'm happy to say. I mean, I've had, uh, as most people do, the typical summer jobs that range everything from uh, everything involving uh, uh, you know, neighborhood duties, cutting grass to working at a sewer plant, you name it. But in, in terms of full-time, long-term, uh, post-schooling uh, career work, I've uh, run think tanks in uh, uh, three states, uh, Michigan, the Mackinac Center, for 21 years. Uh, uh, Before that, the Center for Market Alternatives in Idaho for three years, and now the Foundation for Economic Education uh, for 10 years. I also uh, taught at the university level, Northwood University, for seven years. Uh, That's the first thing I did right out of graduate school beginning in 1977. So in some sense, I've always been a kind of missionary, whether it be at a think tank or in the classroom, uh, trying to find ways to persuade and convince people. And in my case, uh, my main focus is trying to persuade and convince them of the merits of liberty, free markets, and the most important thing that underpins uh, free markets and liberty, and that is uh, personal character.
0: Was it easier back then to with students to teach the message of liberty was it i mean the liberal the word libertarian probably wasn't as prominent back then at least that's been my impression is that you know that word is pretty it's a house not a household name but people people kind of know what it means when you say you're a libertarian but back then you didn't really i don't know what was it like uh, i guess i don't want to make any assumptions about what it was like why don't you tell me
1: <laughs> well by the time i started teaching in 1977 uh, I was very familiar with the term libertarian because for almost a decade at that point, I had been reading literature from the Foundation for Economic Education. And that term libertarian uh, was, if not coined by our founder, Leonard Reed, no relation. At least uh, he was one of its most prominent uh, 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 practitioners and and somebody who used that term a lot. So I was familiar with it uh, Now, I started teaching at Northwood University, which was, from the beginning, very friendly territory. Uh, uh, It was a school, still is today, uh, committed to ideas of freedom and free markets. It's located in Midland, Michigan. I was attracted uh, there because I knew that I'd have the opportunity to continue to grow in my own understanding and have a friendly environment to share these ideas with students. And oh, I have to say, those seven years of teaching at Northwood uh, really just gave me an incredible start uh, for my career I, uh, as, a, as a public speaker, as um, a uh, teacher. Uh, I just learned so much, just, uh, uh, you know, how to relate to people in the classroom. I think I was a far better teacher the year I left than I might have been in the first uh, few months. But. Uh, nonetheless, uh, that was an incredible experience. And to this day, I still have students, former students, of course, who, uh, uh, contact me and say, Mr. Reed, I remember you changed my life. You know, I remember your classes, uh, all those decades ago. And that's just a great feeling. And, and so I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, and it was great preparation ultimately for running, uh, think tanks.
0: You know, you mentioned that you had been reading, uh, material from the Foundation for Economic Education, even way back then before you were involved, uh, you know, I think one of the things that, um, you know, this might be a good time to kind of pivot to one of the other things I want to talk about, which is you know you've been in the Liberty movement for a while. You've also seen a lot of the ways in which the church has either participated in or uh, or sort of eschewed the Liberty movement. I mean, there's kind of the kind of both goes both ways. Have you seen like what sort of evolution have you seen in the church in its posture toward the message of liberty?
1: Well, I've certainly noticed that uh, among mainline denominations, there is uh, at best an indifference and too often at worst uh, a hostility uh, to um, uh, a liberty that wasn't there perhaps, uh, at least not to this extent, uh, maybe 150 years ago. that The church uh, uh, in, the, in the past has had far more uh, advocates for individual liberty because they uh, they saw it as perfectly compatible with Christianity. In fact, even more so, it was uh, uh, ordained by Christianity. But in the last uh, century, you've you've had the rise of things like liberation theology and so very different views, um, uh, uh, very, quote, liberal perspectives that I think actually run counter to uh, uh, the traditional church teaching and, more importantly, to the teachings of Christ uh, himself.
0: So d- what about— um involvement in, I mean, were there a lot of Christians involved in some of the early movements at FEE or in some of the other publications that were out there? Well, for decades
1: at FEE, we had uh, full-time on staff a remarkable man by the name of uh, Reverend Edmund Opens. Uh, I knew Ed very well, and I wish I knew off the top of my head exactly how many years he was with FEE, but I think in the neighborhood of 30. And it was his job uh, and his passion to uh, uh, get people to understand that uh, liberty is uh, something that's perfectly compatible with christianity and in fact uh, with many tenets of other faiths as well but he in particular was a congregationalist minister so uh, he came at it uh, from that perspective but at fee we've um, uh, had a long history of people on staff who Uh, uh, If they were not professed Christians, they were at least quite friendly uh, to uh, Christian ideas.
0: Yeah, we're uh, big fans of Edmund Opitz uh, at LCI. In fact, we have a huge amount of things that he's written that we've republished, things that were kind of able to be republished over the year. So there's quite a few uh, things there. We'll put a link up to that at the show notes page uh, because we are big fans of Edmund Opitz, uh, especially I know Norman Horn is as well. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. And did you ever get to meet him?
1: Oh I knew Ed very very well I knew him probably 20 years or more met him first in 1977 so I would have known him about 20, 20 years because I think he died about 10 or 12 years ago.
0: Yeah, I never got to really read I never got to meet him of course and I didn't really read anything by him until probably about seven or eight years ago uh, and uh, I, it actually turned out that the book of his I ordered on Amazon was signed Oh like it wasn't it wasn't advertised as such but it was was that
1: uh, religion and capitalism allies not enemies?
0: I believe that was it or no, it was a libertarian, uh, libertarian theology of freedom. Oh, okay. Uh, It was that one, that one, it's like a white book with red, red lettering and a black and white picture of it. Okay. Oh, well, that's cool. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about your tenure at fee. You've been there for 10 years now and I, I think it's probably not an overstatement to say and maybe you can kind of correct me to, if if this has happened in the past, but it's pretty been a pretty big decade for libertarian for the libertarian movement uh, in a number of ways. Um, there's, there's new arguments, there's new inner, inner libertarian spats and all that kind of stuff, but there's a lot of growth, I think, yes. uh, in the Liberty movement, um, as evidenced by a lot of things, including the growth of fee. So, uh, talk a little bit about what you've observed in the last decade or so. Um, and you can, you can go back further than that if you need to, but, uh, yeah, just talk, talk to us about that. The
1: movement for Liberty has grown, uh, incredibly in the last decade Uh, We still need to grow so much more, though, and sometimes I wonder if uh, the other side is um, uh, growing a little faster than we are. But I'm still very optimistic about the future. But when I look at the last decade, I see the growth of uh, not only new organizations, uh, think tanks devoted to liberty, uh, but the literature has uh, expanded immensely. Uh, At FEE, we've uh, gone from a situation where we were... Uh, on the verge of going out of business a decade ago to where we've had uh, uh, such remarkable growth. We're now one of the leaders again in the liberty movement worldwide. And that's by any measure, by uh, unique visitors to the website, by engagements in social media, by sheer volume of content, by uh, numbers of uh, people who uh, I- interact with Fee in an in-person way at events all over the world, you name it. Uh, we've come a long way in just 10 years. And to a great extent, uh, we've seen that kind of growth uh, elsewhere in the movement, too.
0: What do you think the role of the Internet has played in the advance of liberty? I mean, it, it's it's almost like a setup question here. <laughs> it's, it's big, of course. But why has it been big? Because I think that's been part of Fee's success, too.
1: Well, I think that uh, here I am doing a podcast with you, and you're in uh, what state?
0: I'm in Pennsylvania.
1: Okay, you're in Pennsylvania, my home state, by the way. I'm in Georgia, and uh, you're exposing what I'm having to say uh, to lots of new people, and the Internet has done that for us. Uh, uh, At FEE, I can speak uh, more knowledgeably about how we've adapted to it. Uh, We've actually discontinued the hard copy magazine that we were – known for for decades called the Freeman and instead of uh, put uh, almost everything we do online at its peak the Freeman was getting about 50,000 uh, subscribers a month but uh, now uh, we have about a ma- million and a half unique visitors to the website every month and tens of thousands of more uh, more people all over the world who are attending our events so through the use of technology the internet being uh, principal uh, among uh, the devices of technology today, Uh, we're reaching uh, far more people than we ever did before, just a few years ago.
0: How's the method of communication outside of the medium itself, the sort of the rhetorical changes? I guess I'm thinking about the rhetorical changes of uh, making the case for liberty. How has that changed when you reach out to people who aren't libertarians, or maybe they're sort of interested? Like where does that, what has changed and what has worked uh, differently in your opinion? There's so much competing for people's
1: attention these days, and their attention spans, I think, on balance, are getting shorter. Uh, what that means is that uh, you cannot expect people to sit down as we used to and read 300-page uh, books, uh, you know, one or two every every month or so. Uh, you have to reach them uh, in more uh, uh, brief formats, uh, whether it be by video or social media uh, uh, in posts. Uh, or shorter articles on the website. So everything we do today is aimed at uh, very busy people who have shorter and shorter attention spans. So we have to get, uh, as we have, increasingly better at making our points uh, in uh, a short period of time.
0: Man, I'd be happy if people would read a short article. I think the attention span at this stage is like meme length.
1: Exactly. So (laughs) we're even doing some of those. Uh, which uh, you know, I don't think in the Freeman in decades we ever had a cartoon. But uh, look at the uh, instance t- today of memes. I mean, they're used by everybody.
0: Yeah. What about the what about the actual content of some of that that message? Um, you know, when you reach out to somebody on the left or somebody on the right. I mean that that has to change over. I mean, they, the left and the right, and and I kind of use those categories just because that's kind of how we talk about things. They they've changed too. I mean, the the right from 20 years ago is very different uh, from what it looks like today, especially in a post-Trump era. And the left is incredibly different. And so the arguments you make probably have changed. I mean, what, what have you observed in that, in that phenomenon?
1: I think there's probably good and bad in, in uh, what's happened, what's evolved over uh, recent years. On the side of uh, uh, concerns, uh, you know, who hasn't noticed the increasing uh, polarization uh, uh, the nastiness that uh, I don't think we saw in public discussion any, to anywhere near the extent that we see it today. Uh, there's just a, uh, an erosion of what I used to call, still call the presumption of goodwill, where people who have disagreements can still uh, have uh, civil discussion. But now uh, you, you just never know what, what somebody might find offensive uh, at the drop of a hat, uh, even though no offense is uh, intended. Um, and you have to be short and sweet and uh, sensitive, uh, more so than ever before. Um, but we do have more media, more opportunities t- to put our message in front of people than we've ever had before. So we just have to be more careful in what we say and how we say it, although the, uh, the core arguments, uh, the principles, are the same, at least at fee, uh, today as they were when fee was founded more than 70 years ago.
0: So when somebody asks you, you know, they, they might know that you're a Christian and then they realize that you're a libertarian or you tell them what you do. And they're like, wow, you're a Christian and a libertarian. What's your what's your <laughs> I mean, to somebody like me and probably like you, you're like, well, this just seems to fit. And there's a lot of listeners out there where they're just like, well, it seems to fit in my mind. And I've worked out all of the major components of what might possibly be incompatible. And I've made those work. uh, And or maybe it comes more naturally to some people. But, you know, I know a lot of people are like, well, how do I tell other people that this just this just is compatible because of, you know, X, Y and Z? You know, what what makes those two things compatible for you? I mean, you've lived <laughs> you've lived this way for a long time and this is just part of who you are. Uh, for a lot of us, it's kind of it's relatively new for many people. So what what do you tell people when they ask, really? You, how can you do both? Uh, that's funny you should raise that because it has happened to me many times. Uh, there is a, uh, a
1: general reaction out there that, that, that so many people think that to be uh, for liberty or to be a libertarian and to be a Christian somehow uh, poses a dilemma uh, or a conflict. And I'm usually quick to express, uh, uh, you know, I, I usually come back and say, why would you even question why liberty and Christianity? Uh, are uh, might be incompatible. I mean, after all, the most important thing that a person uh, within the Christian faith ha- uh, uh, has to decide in his uh, lifetime is whether or not to accept Christ as uh, as Savior. That's, and that's uh, a very personal and voluntary choice. Uh, and everything else flows from there. Everything else is less important uh, in life, uh, but every bit as... Um, Uh, as subject to uh, personal discernment and decision-making. I mean, you and I were created uh, as unique individuals. That in itself suggests to me that to be fully human, to be fully who you are uh, and to be fully who I am, we have to be granted considerable freedom to to live our lives. I mean, otherwise, uh, you're not living your life. You're living somebody else's life who's telling you what to do at every turn. Hey, folks, Norman
0: Horn here from LCI. Would you do us a quick favor and rank us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe to us? High rankings help us get the word out. And now let's get back to the show. Yeah, well, Larry, you've actually written about this. In fact, uh, when LCI has visited uh, various conferences and met up with certain people, we actually have this pamphlet that's produced by Fee. Uh, it's called "Rendering Unto Caesar: Was Jesus a Socialist?" And you, they, people, can find that on on Fee's website. And it's it's pretty short. I mean, printed it out, it's uh, let's see, eleven pages here. I actually have it right here. Uh, it's eleven pages, and it's a great you know, tracked, if you will, to to kind of give to people. So what's what's the what's the gist of that? I mean, was Jesus a socialist? I mean we hear that a lot because it sounds like all the things, you know, the message of the kingdom and the Sermon on the Mount. I mean, if Jesus were telling all of that to uh you know to politicians, you might get the impression that he's telling them to be socialist.
1: <laughs> well you have to start with an understanding of what socialism is. Uh, A lot of people seem to think uh, socialism is just people sharing things with each other or that it's uh, government doing nice things to people or for people, uh, that it's uh, welfare programs uh, which help people in need and that sort of thing. Uh, But what differentiates socialism from every other system of economic organization and from its principal competitor, capitalism, is the fact that it's based on force, It's not voluntary. In fact, if it's voluntary, I like to tell people that it's not socialism. Um, Socialists don't give speeches and say, why don't you all choose voluntarily to to behave a certain way? Uh, They have a litany of government programs that they want to impose upon people whether it be for the redistribution of wealth, or the central planning of an economy, or the uh, uh, state ownership of the means of production. All of that requires the use of political force. It seems to me you can scour the New Testament and not find a a single word, let alone a sentence from Jesus that would suggest he would support the concentration of power and money in the hands of, of, of government. Is uh, he had other things in mind, and uh, you look at one parable after another that he tells, from the um, uh, the Good Samaritan story to the parable of the talents to the parable of the workers in the vineyard. Time and again, the the bottom line message is entirely compatible uh, with uh, voluntarism and a free market or capitalism.
0: So let me let me play a little bit of devil's advocate because. Every Democratic socialist friend that I have who posts Bernie memes and the I think it's Cortez is her last name, uh, the one that uh, defeated in a primary one of the Democratic incumbents in, I think, New York. But anyway, uh, the, the the biggest thing that I get is from them is you guys don't understand. We're not socialists were democratic socialists. So what they're gonna what they're gonna say is that they're not for the kind of socialism that impose things from the top down. They're socialists that allow the the people, whatever that means, the people to decide what other the people, okay, uh it already breaks apart just in this description My <laughs> yeah. uh get to get to be or get to do. And therefore if you're part of society we're going to democratically choose or we're going to democratically decide and again whatever that means uh this is what's good for the country or this is what's good for this community or or large scale large scale society uh and so they they basically they don't like it when we say that we kind of focus on the socialism part yeah. so what is so there's this sort of evolution in the in the way that the term has been used. Like, I don't know a lot of common folk who are or popular level arguments for socialism that are or for democratic socialism that are actual what we have historically known as socialism. Now, I, I do know. That there there is an actual platform for democratic socialists that do talk about the state state owned means of production and things like that. But the average person who's advocating for this, the ones who aren't just caught up in oh it sounds nice, let me be for that. Yeah. I'm talking about the people who have probably thought through this. And I have a few friends, not all of them, but a few friends who are like they're they're committed to this, and some of them are Christians. What what's wrong with democratic socialism? I mean and that it, that sounds better than democratic capitalism, which is which is has been a term that's thrown around as well.
1: Well, ultimately, in the long run, uh, democratic socialism, those two words, uh, basically uh, they are an oxymoron because the more you concentrate power and money in the hands of the state, and that's what their platform calls for. They want uh, far more government than we presently have today. They want to concentrate Uh, power and money in the hands of politicians, the more you do that, the less likely you will ever retain the democratic elements. This is one of the uh, uh, essential lessons, I think, of history, that if you want to preserve democracy, that is widespread popular participation in government, the last thing you want to do is to make government so big, uh, so important in the lives of everybody that uh, all of us are fighting each other, trying to either get in charge of it or to uh, either because we want to use it to our own personal advantage, or we want to keep it at bay because it has such power uh, to use against us. You concentrate power and money in the hands of the state, you sooner or later will erode the very pillars of democracy that democratic socialists say uh, they so, so strongly support. One of the lessons of America's founding uh, the, the, if our founders were present on this pr- podcast right now, I think they'd be quick to say, they would say, look, we understood what happens when uh, uh, when government is, is, is extraordinarily powerful. You can't expect it to be democratic. Sooner or later, the temptations of power uh, will corrupt the system and deprive ordinary people of access to government or access to policy. And uh, people who are exercising uh, power will reign supreme. So that's the dilemma that every democratic socialist has to face. They're promising conflicting objectives. It's one or the other, Demo- democracy or socialism. You can't in the long run have have them both.
0: Yeah, and their comeback would be that, and, and, and I love to hear people's responses to this, so I don't wanna get yours as well, is that, well, as it is now, and I realize we're in sort of a cronyism kind of environment more so than unfettered capitalism, but their idea of unfettered capitalism will yield um, the people who have power, like the, the few will have power because they get wealthy. You know, they're already bemoaning the income inequality or the money inequality gap, which can be a meaningless statistic depending on how you wanna be measuring things. But these people are going to say, well, without the state somehow keeping the powerful in the market in check, then those who are powerful in the market are going to become the de facto concentration of power that you talked about.
1: What they don't seem to understand is that uh, uh, the, the powerful, the well-connected, the already wealthy, they will be the ones who have the greatest access uh, to a government that uh, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, you cannot have big government and good government at the same time. The bigger it is, the greater the temptations of those wielding power uh, to uh, uh, take advantage of it, to gain, gain uh, connections and power and money for themselves. There's nothing about government that says, uh, you know, once you go to it and become a representative or a bureaucrat, that so- suddenly the your angelic character comes out. I mean, what happens is uh, that the temptations of power are uh, eternally corrupting. So, if you really want to keep uh, people uh, from using their the power of their wealth to uh, control others, the last thing you want to do is give them access to a. a, a political machine that um, uh, allows them to do things they could never get accomplished in, the, in a free marketplace.
0: Yeah, in a free market, those people who are in power are often never the same over, over the course of decades, but doing what you're describing would institutionalize the access to power if you have money.
1: Exactly. I, I mean, look at today at the, uh, uh, here at the start of the 21st century, uh, you've got government in the United States that's many times bigger as a share of our national income than it was 100 years ago. And you'd think that democratic socialists would say, well, I'm happier uh, today than I was 75 or 100 years ago. No, I mean, we, we've largely done an awful lot of what they wanted. We've grown government immensely. And if anything, they're, they're less happy with it today than ever before. What they don't understand is that all this uh, corruption, this uh, uh, the wielding of power, the uh, crushing of the little guy, is being made possible and being institutionalized by a government that they helped grow.
0: Yeah, they just—they just, yeah, their their one-line response to that is Ronald Reagan. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, they think that Ronald Reagan deregulated everything and and instituted a wild wild west. Yeah, uh, the, the, they love bumper stickers. They really do.
1: And it's one of our problems is getting uh, Democratic socialists to actually understand reason facts. Logic, experience, history, Uh, economics—they live by bumper stickers.
0: Has anybody ever asked you? uh, You know, well, is—is there ever been any sort of successful libertarian country that you could point to to make me be intrigued by this idea that we should have a free society?
1: I can give you two examples, and these are examples of uh, uh, spots on the world. I I, I use that instead of the word country because, in the case of one, it really wasn't its own country, but at least uh, a jurisdiction. Uh, where they they adopted free markets and they took a terrible situation and quickly made it uh, one of the most prosperous in the world. One is Hong Kong, right after uh, World War II. While the mother country, uh, Great Britain, went in a socialist direction, its colony uh, at that time, Hong Kong, uh, went very much in a free market direction. And they went from about 750,000 people to about 8 million today. And from Uh, A per capita income that was way below the world average to now one that's uh, way above the world average. And they did it entirely through uh, a pursuit of free markets with uh, incredibly low taxes, no tariffs, no minimum wage, minimal government interference. Uh, And another good example is Germany right after World War II. I mean, you had a country that was devastated, defeated, flattened, destroyed, It just had gone through a decade and a half of uh, national socialism, uh, was occupied by foreign powers, uh, several million refugees pouring into it uh, from the east, and so forth. Terrible situation, and yet within a decade, by 1960, uh, or even late 50s, uh, Germany became an economic powerhouse and the most prosperous country in Western Europe. Why? Largely because of uh, Ludwig Erhard, their finance minister, later chancellor, who uh, uh, decontrolled the economy, introduced a sound currency, balanced the budget, reduced taxes and tariffs, and uh, you know we spoke of it in the 1950s as the German economic miracle. Um, and lots of Americans knew about it at that time, and today you don't hear so much about it. But it it was a miraculous economic recovery uh, from total devastation, and it was entirely because of uh, uh, freedom and free markets.
0: So you've actually mentioned a few people along the way and you know, talking about your journey and your experiences at FEE, who are some of your, um, who do you look up to in the Liberty Movement, either currently or people in the past? In the
1: past, uh, certainly the, the, the leading scholars that uh, I revere are people like Henry Hazlitt, a great economist and a longtime member of the FEE Board of Trustees, uh, Ludwig von Mises of the Austrian School of Economics and uh, his uh, student F.A. Hayek, a Nobel Prize winner and uh, Austrian economist. Uh, going back a little further, uh, Frederick Bastiat. I think there's there's been no better storyteller in the history of liberty than uh, the French economist uh, Frederick Bastiat, who lived in yeah. the first half of the 19th century. Uh, those are giants, uh, and so they're among my. Uh, 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 you know uh, heroes in the political sphere. Um, you know, you're, I'm always disappointed with politics. So, uh,
0: <laughs>
1: so all these names, uh, come with their flaws, but in my <laughs> lifetime, you know, Ronald Reagan was, uh, uh the best president, uh, in the, uh, since I've been alive, Margaret Thatcher was the best British prime minister in the last half century. And that was because they, uh, uh did a great deal to, uh, 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 deregulate and and uh, introduce uh, market reforms and uh, success speaks for, for itself. In both both cases, uh, uh, the economies of Britain and the United States, as a result of their policies, uh, blossomed. Um, so I, I have great respect for them too, as well as those uh, scholars I mentioned.
0: So, what do you think about the future of the Liberty Movement or the future? Actually, let me just let's make it broader. What do you think of the future of our society? I mean, is this do you? You said you're an optimist, so I'm guessing you're going to go in that direction. But I mean, do you have some things that are concerning that, you know, could change your optimism if we don't take them seriously? I don't
1: think there's anything that could uh, change me from an optimist to a pessimist. And if for no other reason, then nobody knows the future for sure. It can turn on a a dime. And there are a lot of good people, more than uh, at any time in my lifetime, who are working full time to make for a better and freer future. We just don't know how or when that might uh, evolve. But um, I do know that uh, the moment you become pessimistic, two bad things happen. Number one, you don't work as hard for what you know to be right, if you've already given up. And secondly, you're not gonna be as persuasive or convincing uh, 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 of others uh, to embrace ideas of liberty if you even suggest that uh, we're on the losing side. So. Uh, I think the future uh, is bright because I have no reason at this point to to think otherwise. Because I don't know the future, uh, uh, so I'm an eternal optimist. There's no reason to be pessimistic. It's it's a self-fulfilling and destructive. Uh, prophecy to be pessimistic about the future
0: do you think that that goes into people's way of arguing about liberty because you know it's easy on facebook to just bemoan everything that's going wrong i mean are you you think it's good to be an optimist in the sense that this is the kind of angle we should take in promoting liberty rather than being the the naysayers all the time
1: well i do believe that uh but i think i'd still be an optimist even if that weren't the case but there's no question that most people want to be on the side of what they think is uh uh, the winner or the, uh, the the winning idea, and they like to think that it's a winning idea because it's a good idea. And I'd make a very strong case that liberty uh, is both that it's a it's it's the best idea for how people should live and and interact uh, and interrelate with each other. And it's also um, I, I think the uh, ultimate victor. People will be free uh, sooner or later. Uh, it may come. Uh, at different stages and to varying degrees in different places. But ultimately, I think uh, our ideas of, of individual liberty are so far superior to central planning, central control, concentrating power in the hands of politicians, that it's only a matter of time before we prevail. There may be bumps along the way. I'm sure there will be. But um, it's too good an idea for humanity uh, to ignore forever.
0: Yeah, I agree. That's That was very well said. Yeah. Uh that's, it's too good of an idea. That's, that's really wonderful. So, uh, what's next for, what's next for you in your career? Uh, what, what should, uh, you know, people who, you know, look you up on fee and, you know, kind of start following what you do, you writing a book, wh- where's your career going?
1: This is the year I turn 65 and it's also the year that I have announced, uh, that, uh, pending the, uh, uh choice of a successor, that I'll step into the President Emeritus role. That could happen yet this year, or if it takes a little longer uh, to find a successor, it might be in 2019. But in any event, as President Emeritus of FEE, I will be every bit as active as I have been for the past 10 years. I'll just be less involved in the day-to-day administrative duties of uh, FEE, and uh, hopefully, I'll have more time for speaking and for writing. I love to write. In fact, that's uh, a major motivation for me uh, in getting into the liberty movement. 50 years ago, I wanted to be uh, primarily a writer and secondarily a speaker. Uh, but you know, when you run a think tank, uh, you've got to fundraise, you've got to uh, uh, attend to day-to-day administrative duties and so forth. Uh, I'd just like to step back and have more time to, uh, to write. So yes, there are several books I have in mind and a lot of articles.
0: Well, that's great. I'm going to link, uh, on our show notes page to your, uh, to your bio page on fee and, uh, any other articles that we can, or any other kind of, you know, pages that we can link to so that people can get in touch with you and, uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, It's been, it's been great to have this conversation about the Liberty Movement, about, you know, arguing with people who uh, misunderstand Jesus's (laughs) politics, kind of get some, get some ideas out there and and stuff. So thanks for being with us.
1: Hey, thank you, Doug. Anytime. I, I love libertarian Christians and I wish you every success.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you like today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group. You are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. The audio engineers were Doug Stewart and Jason Rink, and voiceovers were by Matthew Bellis and Caitlin Horne. If you'd like to find out more about the LCI, please visit us on the web at www.libertarianchristians.com.